Hello, it's Tom Peck here, political sketch writer at The Independent, and welcome to The Independent Premium Events podcast. In this series, you'll get the chance to listen back to all of the live events that we put on here at The Indy for our premium subscribers. If you aren't subscribed already, click the link in the description and sign up today for access to loads of exclusive articles, including in-depth analysis from people like me, long reads, opinion pieces, and much more. As a subscriber, you can attend events like the one you're about to hear for free and get involved with them as well. So make sure you click the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Independent Premium. Uh, Hello, everyone. Um, I hope you can all hear me. If not, then I'm sure somebody will let me know. Um, Welcome to the latest Independent Premium premium event uh, taking place just like the rest of your life, I'm sure, right here inside your laptop. And that event is Brexit, What Comes Next? Uh, I'm Tom Peck, political sketch writer, and I'll be chairing the event. Our other panellists are the economics editor, Ben Chu, Whitehall editor, Kate Devlin, and chief political commentator, John Rental. Now, I can't say as I actually know when this event was set up, but I don't suppose any of us should be surprised that it would turn out that Brexit, What Comes Next? is a question that it was too optimistic even to hope might be known just three weeks before the end of the transition period. But that is definitely not going to stop us from blindly speculating about it over the course of the next 75 minutes. As things stand, Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen have committed to keep on talking. And for as long as they will, then so will we. Um, What is the case, though, is that while the exact shape of Brexit is still, still unknown, the range of options have narrowed significantly. A very bare bones deal is the best outcome economically that might be possible and no deal at all looks, dare I say it, somewhat probable. Uh, Either of those two outcomes are likely to lead to difficulties that the British people are unlikely to just accept as their lot in life for the foreseeable future. So either outcome is likely to be the precursor to, you've guessed it, yet more negotiations. Now, whatever happens 2021 in in that case will mark a profound shift in this country's economic model and geopolitical role, the like of which hasn't really been seen before in modern times. But they're easy words to say. What is hard is to close one's eyes and try and actually see what they mean, that the future in that regard is not really very far away. And that is what we're going to try and see a bit more of tonight, see if we can see a bit more of what what it might look like. Um, It's agonising to have to say it, but after four and a half years, Brexit is finally about not to end, but to begin. So what does come next? Lots of you have sent in your questions and we've read them all. And even if we can't answer them all directly this evening, we have, we hope, picked out ones that will cover all the areas of the questions that you've asked about. Now, Brexit and its effects fall into three main areas, really. There's the politics of Brexit, the economics of Brexit, and, you know, the the real life of Brexit. What will we eat? How will we go on holiday? And all these things are inevitably now cut across with the politics and the economics of coronavirus. All these things are linked, but we will try and deal with them as in, in sort of four separate sections tonight, if you like. So, so let's get going, shall we? First of all, we should probably start with quite literally what comes next. And so this is the first question. Is Sunday now really the final deadline for a Brexit deal? And what happens if one is not signed by Sunday? John Rental, good evening. Hello. Hello, Tom. Um, uh, No, Sunday is not the final deadline. Sunday is the final deadline for deciding when the next final deadline is going to be, uh, I suspect. 
Um, unlike you, Tom, I, I still expect a deal to be done. Uh, I know this looks increasingly um, ridiculous of me, uh, and I'm probably going to end up um, with egg on my face, but I think that what's happening now is exactly what you'd expect to happen if you had wargamed it beforehand, which is that both sides will push it uh, absolutely to the brink. Uh, nobody knows what the real deadline is because that is actually physically set by the difficulty of translating uh, however many pages of legal text it is into different languages and doing the sort of legal due diligence on it. Um, and then presenting it to a Zoom meeting of the uh, European Parliament, which is one of the hilarious uh, final touches, which is that the European Parliament can actually uh, vote remotely, so they don't have to meet in Brussels, so they can actually approve it right at the last minute. And I think um, both sides are going to push it uh, right to the edge in the hope that the other side um, loses its nerve first. Uh, so what you'd expect to see is what's happened so far, which is that they both, uh, they've prepared the ground, they've agreed almost everything, but the last few difficult issues they've left at the last minute and they're hoping the other side will concede first. Um, so as you say, as we look forward to what's going to happen next in Brexit, it does rather depend on whether I'm right or not, because <laughs> there is a big difference uh, between uh, getting a deal done now and a no deal outcome. Of course, you say that they're, they're keeping push, pushing at the last minute, but from the outside, at least, the, 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 the statements that were released last night, it seems that this last minute push, both sides potentially pushing in the opposite direction. And actually, this, this landing zone that there needs to be um, potentially looks further away than it look, looks like it's getting more distant rather than near, if you know what I mean. That, that's my view. Anyway. Yeah. I'm not okay yeah, no, but that's exactly what you'd expect to happen. I mean, you can almost imagine Dominic Cummings saying to... Uh, to, to Boris Johnson some time ago before he uh, he was cast into the outer darkness. Uh, look, you've got to uh, you've got to push this to the brink. You've got to look as if you're not prepared to give an inch. Uh, and then, of course, you can concede everything you like at the last minute as long as as long as they give you something um, that you can bring back to the House of Commons and uh, and proclaim as a triumph. Uh, Tory MPs have got nowhere else to go. They'll believe you, and they will all uh, proclaim it as a triumph too. And uh, that's. That's sort of how I expect it to end. But uh, I, I must say the whole problem with brink, brinkmanship is, of course, it makes, uh, it makes everybody extremely nervous, including uh, people like me. Uh, Kate, good evening. Um, I, I, as it happened, I, I w watched the um, rather unimpressive Vicar of Dibley um, COVID Brexit special thing last night. And um, I now wonder if it will indeed be a case of no, 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 no. Yes. And there will, in fact, be a deal. Um, I'm not sure if you share John's views or nope. if Kate is with us. I think she's having ah. a bit of problems with her uh, well, uh, connection. Ben, hi, ben, Tom. Hello, hello, hello. But um, can I just make a point about the deadlines question? Um, I think it's worth bearing in mind that it's a political uh, deadline. It's not a sort of natural uh, event. It's, you know, it's set by politicians and it can be unset by politicians. The difficulty is the politics of unsetting it, right? On the UK side 
and the European side. If there's a will to do it, they can do it ultimately. It'll be tough, but it but it is possible. And you know, I'll go back to covering the uh, the Greek uh, standoff with the European Union during the Eurozone crisis, and there was many many occasions when it said, "Well, we're going to go over the deadline," and they just pushed the deadline back. I mean, many people have made this point; it's not new, but it is true. You know, when these things um, come to these crunch moments, it's perfectly possible for politicians to say, "We're going to create extra time," and it's perfectly conceivable that they will do so again over this uh, over over the Brexit. Well, as things stand, the British government's position appears to be you're not having our fish and we will, sovereignty is everything. We, we can't have you in the future making our rules for us. Um, that, is, that is pretty clear. And then the EU's position is also pretty clear. If this is all brink, brinksmanship to do a deal at the last minute, what does that deal look like? Because the distance is so, the, the positions are so, they're not difficult to understand. And it's very hard to see where the landing ground is. I mean, if there's to be some compromise, who does what? Where does it end? Well, no, I mean, the deal is, uh, all right, you can have some of our fish. And um, yes, we'll abide by uh, any changes in uh, EU standards in future. But uh, we are going to decide for ourselves to abide by them. Um, and we're not going to be told by, uh, by you lot uh, that we have to abide by them in advance. So it's, it, I mean, that's, that's essentially how it's, how it's going to work. The only question is, how do you how do you word that in, in, in legal language? Um, and that's presumably what, uh, what, they're, what they're working on now. Kate, will there be a deal? <laughs> it's such a difficult one. The problem, of course, is the incentives. Um, in a lot of ways, there should be a deal. It's going to be very, very bad for both sides if there isn't a deal. But the problem is the landing zone to take them in is just so diametrically opposed that they've got they've got real problems. I mean, I still probably think that there will be a deal just because yes. of the problems they create for themselves in the future. <laughs> um, you know, but but I mean, I'm probably less sure of that than I was six months ago, if I could put it like that. I'm less sure than I was six minutes ago. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely less sure than I was uh, before half ten last night. <laughs> I mean, if there, if there is to be a deal, right, then, then what is essentially certain is that Boris Johnson, um, David Frost have already decided what it is that they will do to get one. I mean, they, they, Correct. They, they, yeah, they, they must already know what how far they're prepared to go if, if this is still part of the game. And I guess what will be key is once they, if they are to make some sort of last minute concession to get a deal, they will be thinking very hard about how they then present this deal as a victory for them, because they've made it very clear that it's all about sovereignty. And if there is to be a deal, they will have to concede on something that they've made very clear that they essentially won't concede on. So I wonder what you think, Ben, will be the, um, you know, the, the politics of presenting a deal that potentially if it happens, they've already decided what it will be. Yeah. Well, it is all about the politics. And you know, we'll talk about the economics later. But you know, the economics of the fishing industry, it's 0.03% of the UK economy. It's absolutely tiny, it's irrelevant. And the level playing field stuff, you know, the right 
you know, they're controlling us from wasting subsidies on failing businesses. That's a favour to us. You know, we should be glad that they're asking to, uh, uh, you know, the, these controls, they're in our economic interest. So it is all about the politics. The problem with the politics is that the government, well, the government at the moment is going around saying that anything that we don't like is a breach of our sovereignty, right? So they're framing it in those terms. When re reality is, if you want a trade deal with the EU, you have to agree to these terms. You have that's what they're asking for. If you don't want to do it, you don't do it, right? It's not really a question of sovereignty. You know, we're in the WTO. We do trade. We're doing loads of trade deals all around, rolling over these other things. Those impose restrictions on what we can do in our sovereignty if you frame it in those terms. But we think it's worth doing. The question is, do we think it's worth doing uh, with the EU? Um, that's the question. It clearly is, in my view, from an economic point of view. It's a question of whether having uh, stoked up all this um, hostility to the EU and made them seem so unreasonable for asking all these things, whether they can then go to their backbenchers, to their voters and say, uh, this was worth it, um, this was a good deal or not, can they spin it? I think that's the big question. Well, I think within that there is a bit of an answer uh, uh, as to how you can sell it, which is that they are defining what sovereignty means almost on a daily basis. I mean, look, in some ways, you know, Theresa May kept saying, um, you know, um, Brexit means Brexit. But now that Boris Johnson is Prime Minister, to a lot of Tory backbenchers, Brexit means what Boris says. And that's part of how they can sell it. And when they bring a deal home, remember, they don't have to actually sell it to the public. They don't have to sell it to, you know, more than 50% of the population. They've got to sell it to leave voters and they've got to sell it to, to Tory backbenchers. And that's, that's really it. They don't really have to sell it to everybody else. Well, this, um, this, this brings me directly on to what is, what is the next question, which, of course, should there be a deal, we shall see. And when we shall see, we shall also see. But time, time runs out. And I think we've all been saying that for about four and a half years. But as you allude to, Kate, when um, the next phase of the process, whenever that may be, will be the, the, the selling of this deal, principally, as you say, to Boris Johnson's backbenchers and also not not selling them but as we've seen for such a long time Brexit is a uniquely um, damaging and difficult and um, impossible headache for the Labour Party and I'll, I guess I'll ask you first Kate is what, what what the question is what will Labour do and what will Boris Johnson's backbenchers do with with any deal that may be forthcoming so I guess the question first is what will Labour do? I think we saw quite a bit more of a hint uh, a bit more of an angle showing on that today from, from Keir Starmer when he talked about um, acting in the national interest. And you can see them very much framing um, a deal as being in the national interest because a no deal is so clearly not in the national interest. But it's not, it's not particularly easy for him. He, you know, his shadow cabinet is divided on this. Um, on a senior Labour person I was spoken to yesterday about this, basically questioned what, what the party would even gain. Um, you know, a lot of people in Labour wonder even why they would do this. They, they would probably annoy a lot of Remainers. And would they even gain anything with Leave voters who are unlikely to forget, you know, the party stunts um, uh, on Brexit. The other thing that, the, that a lot of people in, in Labour have been concerned about has been pitch rolling. That if they're going to do this, they're going to have to sell it, much like much like Boris has to. Um, and so I think it's interesting that that criticism has clearly got through to clear Keir 
and he's starting to come out more and talk about it more and maybe try and explain it a bit more. But I think there needs to be a bit more of a narrative about this because obviously he was very specifically the politician who moved Labour's Brexit position so far against what they will now, it looks like, be voting on. Mm. Um, John, I guess I'll ask you. The, the problem for Labour has always been the same, which is that two-thirds of their voters back Remain, a third of them back Brexit, were the ones that back Brexit are potentially more likely to abandon them. So are therefore more, more of a concern, I suppose. Um, I don't quite know what, um, what, what should Keir Starmer do about any forthcoming deal that, that will, I think probably, you know, with politics, we always talk about the, the, what's, you know, our windows, our noses being pressed up against the glass right now. And then you forget that there's no election for years, but yeah, it's probably, probably in this case, probably not too far fetched to say that what Labour does or doesn't do in the next few weeks might genuinely have a bearing on any election, even if it is in three and a half, four years time. Well, I mean, it is a very important uh, moment, isn't it? It's a very important uh, decision. And whatever uh, Labour MPs do will be, will be held, against the, held against them or in, in, in their favour uh, for years to come. So, I mean, that's why it's, that's, that's why it's important. Uh, and as Kate said, I mean, she's, she's absolutely right, that it's rather difficult for Keir Starmer having talked about uh, a deal being in the national interest to then define the national interest as abstaining. Um, given that you know the only choices are uh, to abstain or to vote for the deal, I mean, they could, Labour can hardly vote uh, against it because that would align, uh, you know, align them with 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 in effect saying that no deal Brexit was was acceptable. So yeah, I, I originally thought that they ought to abstain. I thought you know people don't really understand parliamentary procedure; um, they could get away with it, uh, but it would look a bit it would look horrible for. Uh, a short period. Uh, but Keir Starmer obviously does not want uh, to, to be accused of sitting on the fence on this one and he's decided to uh, decided to go for it and that does and that, that does hamstring him in future because it means whenever something goes wrong with the Brexit deal, whenever there's criticism of it, uh, he, he can't really make those criticisms because the Tories will just say well you voted for it too. Um. I guess the, uh, this is Labour's internal um, issues over this are, are one thing. Um, the more pressing concern for the Prime Minister will be how he sells this to his own parliamentary party, which in the last year and a half, and especially now, has become a quite bizarre construction, which almost reminds me of um, <laughs> like sort of feudal Afghanistan, you know. There's, you can't, there barely a week passes before a new research group is established, all of whom don't seem to be that committed to what most people would understand by the term research. Um, and he must, he has to sort of get this deal and then, and then sell it to what has become a really quite strangely factionalized parliamentary party, all of whom signed up to sort of made a unique pledge of allegiance to him, not very long ago at all, but, but nevertheless, here we are. So I don't, I wonder, um, um, Kate, what, what, what Boris Johnson is thinking with regards to how, you know, how much the pressures of, of, his parliamentary party puts on him in terms of what he can and can't say yes or no to in Brussels? Well, I think the key question is how good is his um, parliamentary intelligence? And it hasn't proven to be particularly good for the last year. Um, as we've seen, like you say, from the research groups um, popping up. I mean, 
you know, you joke that some of them don't seem to be very keen on research. I mean, <laughs> some people within the Tory party say, suggest some, of the, uh, some Tory MPs don't seem to be very keen on conservatism at the minute. Um, <laughs> you know, it's quite a difficult, you know, there's an awful lot of new MPs, some of whom are very little known, um, but have very strong views. It's a very difficult parliamentary party for him to, to manage at the minute. Um, I think there is a sense that the Whip's office is not doing it as well as uh, Number 10 would like, and we're expecting possible changes in the Whip's office um, in, any, um, in any reshuffle in the new year. Um, so, I mean, even that is just kind of factoring into it. I mean, I think he, he probably feels quite confident on this issue um, that, you know, the party has, has backed him in the past and this has in some ways been his kind of comfort zone. You know, they won a great general election result um, on, on get Brexit done. But it would, it's certainly, you know, something would give him kind of um, cause for concern. I mean, I thought it was very interesting in PMQs this week. You know, one, the first question from a Tory MP just alluded to this, sorry, openly mentioned this, no illusion whatsoever. Um, so Edward Lee, you know, told him that he, he didn't come back with a deal, you know, um, unity was strength, which is again, not something you're used to hearing on the Tory side <laughs> of the House of Commons. <laughs> so yeah, it's a big issue. I mean, ultimately, if a deal is forthcoming, it does seem, it does seem unlikely that it won't find its way through the House of Commons. Um, but of course, all of this for the time being is unknowable. And what, what is especially unknowable, and this is the third question, um, and arguably the, the most interesting of them all, um, what will the SNP do? Um, not specifically with regard to the deal, but what is, what is the coming six months going to mean for the cause, the great cause of Scottish independence? And I, I, I always like to ask you these things first, Kate, because you, you know, the future of the union being a Northern Irish uh, woman who used to work for a Scottish newspaper and we must all I just can't escape it <laughs> I just can't escape this this big question um uh I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't say um what's it going to mean for the next six months I would say what's going to mean for the next um two to four years um I mean certainly um some members of the cabinet think it's not a case that the you know the the SNP are gearing up um to to go for this they you know one of them describes to me as game on already um and that you know the rest of um, the UK needs to wake up um, to the fact that, you know, um, the game has already started. Um, the SNP is currently um, riding very high in the polls, so is independence. They have a, an election in less than six months that they claim if they win the Scottish Parliament elections, they'll have a mandate for another independence referendum. I don't know about you, but 2014 seems a very long way away and so much has changed. It's almost a generation, Kate. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I mean, Alex Simon tried to define um, a political generation. It's 12 years, as far as I remember, um, uh, just right at the end of the 2014 um, campaign. And at the time, you know, political commentators made fun of him and, you know, thought this was a ridiculous comment. And honestly, I feel as if I've, you know, aged lifetimes since 2014. I don't know about you guys, you know, especially this year. Um, so yeah, you can see that that could, it will, it will be, it will be held against him. It's a, it's a, a hurdle they're going to have to get over, but you can see how they could make that argument. Um, you know, can, can the Conservative government just continue 
to insist that it's not going to um, to hold a referendum. Yes. I, 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 I thought they could before David Cameron opened the floodgates. You, you think, unfortunately you... for them, he has he has created a precedent. It's very hard to say no to. But you obviously you you think they can they can stick to that position, John? Yeah. Well, constitutionally, um, yeah. yeah, that's true. But it has it has political consequences in mm -hmm. that then the the SNP grievanceology uh, machine can then churn out uh, endless complaints about you know denying the democratic. Uh, wish of the of, of the Scottish people, but I mean the SNP actually will... constitutionally they have a problem as well. Well, they do. I mean, possibly. Which, which, I mean... But, but bear with me. That the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has to call a referendum in Northern Ireland if polls consistently suggest most people want to leave the United Kingdom. Polls are currently suggesting most people in Scotland want to live it, to leave the United Kingdom, and this yeah. was this was not considered when the Good Friday Agreement. Um, legislation was written that it would then you know be applied across the water but it's that is a problem for them it's only but it's only a presentational problem it's not a constitutional that is not the legal position the legal position sure. is that the westminster government can say can say no for, for forever and a day uh, and i hope they do but it is going to have it is going to it's going to encourage um the manufacturing of grievances but my, my point on that is that the snp will manufacture grievances out of whatever you whatever you do. So you might as well do the right thing, which is not have another referendum. But that's a, yeah, that's, that's an opinion rather than, uh, than an analysis. Sometimes, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon appears to be a very lucky politician, um, but, but obviously Brexit begets Boris Johnson. Um, nothing especially begets the coronavirus, but it lands on the watch of a prime minister who is uniquely, potentially poorly disposed to deal with it, especially presentationally. Now, we, we, we all know that there isn't actually much difference in mm. the, the virus is having just as fine a time north of the border as it is south of the border, by and large. Mm. Yet everyone thinks Nic Nicola Sturgeon has done a great job and everyone thinks Boris Johnson has done a terrible job. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there's a kind of worrying strain of um, Tory MP thought that says, so that's fine then. You know, you, you, you find yourself walking around Westminster talking to a Tory MP and they keep pointing out that actually Scotland isn't doing any much better. But the problem they don't then, you know, deal with is, you know, may not be doing any much better in terms of numbers, but Nicola Sturgeon is clearly doing so much better in terms of um, politics and in terms of public support. And just pointing out to people the numbers does not appear to be reducing her public support. And so I fear that there's a complacency there. Um, from the from from Tory MPs, it, it doesn't um, it doesn't change the reality though that, that there doesn't have to be a referendum unless the Westminster government say so, and as things stand, I mean I think I probably agree with John that they that they will cling on for dear life, and and sort of hope for something to come along and save them. Though they, 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 they nothing may arrive. Um, I'm hoping that um, Ben hasn't disappeared off the face of the earth because we are going to move on to the economic stuff. I'm just going to bring up Tom. Um, <laughs> Um, and question four, um, which is, we, we're going to look for a little, little while now about um, Brexit and the economy, uh, rather than the, the, the raw politics of it, if you like. Um, now, whenever Brexit arrived, whenever the transition period came to an end, whatever form it took, it was liable to be a significant, have a significant impact on the economy. Now, it is extraordinary luck 
bad luck that it should have arrived at this remarkable point, um, the, the, a point that's never, well, they say that the, the last time anything happened of this nature was the great frost of 1609. 1709. So, so 1709. Of <laughs> rather, rather better than the great frost who um, was having dinner in the Berlaymont last night. <laughs> Um, um, so I guess the question is, what, what, what are the implications, the short-term, immediate implications for the economy, especially given Brexit or no Brexit, we will be, we are in a recession until at least the end of next year. Yeah, yeah, it, it muddles things up significantly, doesn't it, that we're coming out of the biggest uh, economic crash in 300 years and we're going to have a, another uh, heap of pain on top. I mean, top line numbers, you probably see them, uh, viewers probably saw them. The Office for Budget Responsibility put out some data that got a lot of attention um, a couple of weeks ago. They said if you have a no-deal Brexit next year, you knock off about 2% off GDP growth that we would otherwise have had. So 2%, that's about £40 billion. You break that down for every UK family, so that's about £1,500 for every one of the 23 uh, million UK households, right? So that's pretty significant. But in a way, is that one-off cost? Um, well, not, it, it's a one-off cost in the sense that it will happen next year, but then the cost will extend out uh, indefinitely and get bigger. But I was just going to say, I think that's, in a way, that's the wrong way to look at it in terms of those macro aggregates, although it's very, it's, it's a good, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an understandable way for people to look at it because they want a big number. But the yeah. reality of a no-deal Brexit is very sectoral, right? You know, so if you're a business which does a lot of cross-border trade, the real damage comes at the border because you've got um, all these frictions um, and you've got the tariffs, right? If you've got no-deal Brexit, you've got tariffs on agriculture, lamb, um, beef, all this stuff that we send a lot of it to Europe, seafood. Uh, they get hit by big tariffs. So if you're in those sectors that suddenly have these tariffs coming on, that's very, very bad for you. It may not be bad if you're, you know, you um, work in Tesco's or, you know what I mean, you're in some part of the service economy that's not hit by the border frictions or the tariffs, maybe not that bad. But so you have to think about it in terms of the particularly vulnerable sectors. And, you know, I've mentioned some of them there, but the car industry, uh, the reality, you know, tariffs aren't that high. The Europe, European's common external tariff is not that high overall, but it is high in certain areas. And car uh, imports is one of the areas where it is high. And we export a lot of cars to Europe. In fact, most of our, uh, I think about half of our cars we produce go to Europe and most go to export. So uh, it's very, very bad for the automotive industry if we have 10% tariffs on. Uh, cars going over there and very bad for the workers in those industries. So I think the, the way to think about it is less in the big picture macroeconomic impact, although that is significant, right? Two and a half, two percent off GDP would reduce our growth from about five and a half percent to three and a half percent. That is really bad coming out of this huge 10% fall that we're going to see this year. You don't want that. That will significantly slow down the recovery. But I would say look at the sectors, look at the individual workers, uh, look at the individual impact. That And it, and that's the uh, the way to think about it. And it will not be pretty. Well, it's interesting. When you say look at the individual workers, I, um, I've repeated this many times. A good friend of mine is a painter and decorator. And what, five years ago, four and a half, five years ago now, when we were discussing the, the referendum and him, him intending to vote leave, his view is that his wages are undercut by foreign workers. Um, and his, his line was, um, I don't care about GDP, I care about GD me. Yeah. 
Um, and, um, that's a nice variation on the usual which is it's your bloody gdp not mine <laughs> and I, I guess i guess do you think that you know we are still the transition period has not come to an end mm. um we are still we still remain essentially part of the european economic area um there are still plenty of people that think that we are still on our way to the sunlit uplands though it may take us longer to get there than we thought mm. um do you think that there will be at some point next year, or or, or, may, or it may take longer than that, or it may never happen. Mm. But do you think there will be a point at which we will, as a country, have a, a, a settled view on, 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 the, on the idea that Brexit was a bad idea economically? Or do you think we will argue about it for years to come? Well, I mean, it's not really been about economics, has it, um, for, for these past four, whatever, year, four and a half years. It's been about identity. So to the extent that which economic pain uh, can uh, dis make people's minds up. If it's all about identity, it will never be about that, you know, um, for, for, for people who are really uh, no, but, uh, born but into it. Yeah. It's been about identity, but, but the, the economic side yeah. has been, if you like, um, you, 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 we've been allowed to sort of wait and see. And so, mm. if, so it, the, the vote was four and a half years ago, but people, if they like, can still say, well, look, I think the economy is going to be fine. But I do think after the, at the end of this year, things will change and there will be a point at which the, the what happens to the economy will, will not be something that you'll necessarily just be allowed to claim as, yeah. as it's yeah, going it to be real. The rubber hits the road. I think that's absolutely right. And I was actually talking to someone who's uh, in, in industry today and he was suggesting that if we do have a no deal Brexit and if that does create serious problems in, you know, availability of food in the shops, he said that there wasn't going to, the supermarkets weren't going to shut, but he thinks there could well be uh, gaps on the shelves, a lack of choice. And then you combine that with maybe uh, automotive, you know, car factories saying we're going to have mass layoffs, we're going to shut down plants. And if you get put those two together, Heath, and you have a particular impact in those red wall, blue wall seats, uh, up in up in the northeast in the north uh, he thinks that's when you might start getting the kind of backlash that you described when people start to say hang on this isn't what we wanted um, and then uh, effectively you know you were saying at the start it forces people it could force the UK government back to the negotiating table with the EU to get these tariffs lifted uh, you know so it doesn't end it just comes back with the UK in a in a weaker position having experienced a serious dose of economic pain uh, John, I'm, I, I almost by accident found myself writing a piece today which could potentially, and it's horrifies me to say it, be described as vaguely pro-Brexit. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm the, I'm, I thought I was the Blairite Eurosceptic on, <laughs> on this panel. I thought I was going to be the one who had to, uh, had to just sort of stand in and, and for, for the sake of argument just sort of put some of the pro-Brexit arguments. Well, but not, if you want to take over that position, Tom, then that's fine. <laughs> It's not so much pro-Brexit, but, but the point being that um, the likes of me um, and potentially others at the Independent and probably Independent readers too, are gearing up for this sort of orgy of I told you so in a certain ex to a certain extent. And, and when, if there, are, if there is no deal or if there is a bare bones deal, likely to be immediate economic impact. And then people will be queuing up to say, this is not, come on, this is not what we voted for. This is not what it was, this is not what it was sold to us. This bears no resemblance to Brexit as it was pitched. Um, therefore, it's a disgrace and it must be got rid of. But actually, what, what a lot of Brexiteers voted for was a harsher immigration system, and they've got one. They voted to stop making... Well, they haven't got one yet. I mean, we've got to see the detail and how it works out in practice, but yes. Well, 
The Conservatives like nothing more than to f fly the Union Jack on Twitter and say that they've brought free movement to an end. Um, and that is, yeah, it, but it, they it haven't actually done it yet, and, and I suspect they probably won't in, in practice because it's economically a bad idea. But leave that aside. I guess the, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that there are a lot that even next year, if there is economic difficulty, there will still be a lot of people who voted for Brexit who still think that they've got what they want from Brexit and Brexit is great. And what I'm asking you is, is, is will, they, will they change their mind potentially when, you know, if there are food shortages in the shops, we've just seen food shortages not that long ago and, and the country didn't really cope with it that well. And, and that's, that's at the same time as accepting that it was a complete terrible pandemic freak of nature accident. But if yeah. there are but things, you know, Tony Blair nearly lost, well, I can't remember exactly what happened, but was petrified that fuel shortages nearly brought down his government, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm, I guess if there is, essentially, if, if the supermarket shelves are there in mid-January, will that, will that have the potential to just completely change the country's mind on Brexit and then actually just make people say, God, I didn't know this was what it was going to be. Um, I don't want this anymore. No. Uh, I, I think Ben is absolutely right. Um, this isn't about economics. It's not even about facts. It's about identity. Uh, and people will find uh, someone else to blame. Um, it, won't be, it won't be the fault of, uh, of, of the British people having voted for Brexit. It'll be the fault of uh, the Europeans for refusing to cooperate and for blockading our ports or whatever, whatever uh, they've done wrong or for insisting on, on, uh, on rigorous checks at the border. Or it'll be the fault of, of, of Boris Johnson for not doing Brexit right. I mean, you know, the people would be quite capable of, uh, of, of deciding that. I think, I think most people who, uh, who support Brexit will continue to support Brexit almost regardless of what, uh, what happens. I mean, I think, yeah, obviously there'll be a few people who, who will change their mind. There's a rather entertaining article by Ed West of the... Uh, yeah, State I read that today. Uh, today saying uh, he's changed his mind but I mean that's not because there are the shelves are being cleared it's just because he's sort of slowly come to think the bad idea um, but no I mean we've seen I mean, you've, you know we've seen it in America I, I mean Donald Trump you know hand, handled coronavirus terribly and yet uh, you know he didn't he didn't lose that much support I mean the the, the big fact of that election was that he he very nearly uh, very nearly uh, secured re-election. Um, qu question five is, um, is will the UK ever see any economic Brexit, e economic benefit from Brexit? And if so, how long will it take? I mean, I know, I know that at some point in during the last four years, the once respected and now uh, sort of slightly misunderstood economist Andrew Lillico made it clear that actually Brexit would only be, you could, you'd only be able to judge if Brexit had been a success after 50 years, which of course <laughs> yeah. is um, not great news for anyone who is north of 30, or even just not great news for anyone currently alive. And the people not yet born, as far as I'm aware, did not have a vote. So it is a tenuous point. Um, but I guess, I guess Ben, um, I mean, do you have a view on whether the UK will see any economic benefit from Brexit, how long it might take, and at the point it arrives, um, will it be any way possible to attribute it to Brexit? Yeah. Well, if you look at the um, the credible modelling that's been done on it, the answer is just no, right? The, the Brexit, understand what it is. It means being putting trade barriers up between a block which we with which we do half of our trade, 
and we would reasonably expect to do a lot more trade over the coming decades because of our proximity to them because of our ability to sell them services easily for all sorts of reasons we would have gone on to do a lot more trade with the european union and what you've done with brexit is you've made that more difficult you've made it more difficult to sell them services to sell goods to travel there it's just more difficult in every way to our closest geographical neighbor right so you plug that reality of brexit into all these models and what you find is that that reduces our ability to specialize economically in what we do well it means that uh, we don't grow our productivity uh, domestically which is the root uh, of all our prosperity as, as rapidly as we otherwise would it means we have less foreign investment coming into the uk because our productivity potential our ability to grow is lower so that all means lower gdp lower national income per head however you want to slice it over the coming decades and this is the this is the reason you have all these models which you've heard about saying the cost of brexit is about five to ten percent and a wto brexit a no deal brexit i should say is around five to ten percent of gdp over the next 10 to 15 years they're not specific we don't know exactly how quickly or slowly those costs will be uh, born but that's the the rough order of magnitude that all these independent models using different uh, methods come to so the answer is will brexit leave any economic benefit the answer is no if you believe all those mainstream models which i do the only the case that brexiteers make which you can take or leave is that it's a political argument not an economic argument it's a political argument that it will enable us to somehow make better choices in terms of what policies we pursue that it will may enable us to maybe invest more in education or it will change our attitude to um going out and welcoming other cultures and making links with america and China. you know what i mean they're much more uh well they're outside the models effectively and i don't really buy it but that's the case for it i mean my, my own um sort of positive view is of course that the 40 odd years um Euroscepticism has had a sort of a clear meaning, which is that the country joined a trade bloc um, in 1975, 1973. The trade bloc became a political entity with a parliament and so on and so forth. And therefore the political, and there were sovereignty issues and the political costs of, of membership were not worth the economic price. But those, those arguments didn't ever really convince enough people for, for, to, to, to get Brexit, if you like, done. So new arguments got made up about, about trade, which were never really, never really, held any water but this is what i was wanted to ask you kate is you know i'm sure you'll remember in the run-up to the referendum you know liam fox and people like that talking about how um you know the world is changing and in the future all of our all of our trade will be done with countries that with brazil and with china and and so on and so forth and and europe's got the slowest growth of any country, continent apart from antarctica etc 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 now to me i thought it was pretty clear that that, that was just a sales pitch and, but what I've never really been sure of is whether people like Liam Fox actually believe that stuff themselves. Like, I, like I, I, I wonder if you mean if you 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 have you speak to these people, have your, your context, whether or not there is a there is an actual sense that now that 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 there will actually be some sort of dividend from from you know out into the world the 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 the, the pro Brexit arguments that that failed in the 1970s that that. It's time to move away from Europe and, and Britain can become this big global force again. Now, I, I think that was just a, a sort of a, a bit of a, a con job, essentially. But what I'm not sure about is whether or not the, the people who propagated that 
are actually at this point expecting to get any return on that. They will actually be able to deliver on that in any meaningful way that replaces what we lost um, with the European Union. So I think, I think there, it, it falls into a couple of different groups. Um, certainly there are some of them for whom, um, yeah, they do believe it. Um, uh, and there are others who, for whom it was absolutely um, another part of the arsenal, uh, another way to, to try and sell Brexit. Um, but, you know, are there Tory MPs who genuinely believe in a kind of sunlit upland of a global Britain? Yeah, there are. Um, and, it, you know, there will, be, there will be things that they, that do happen in the future that they believe will be um, th the benefits of Brexit. Um, and I don't think that we can, I don't think we can underestimate that. Um, and they, you know, um, will have differing economic levels. But I think, I think the panel's right. I mean, I think the, the discussion about Brexit had moved on from an economic argument, you know, a very, very long time ago, and it, it did become an identity argument. And in an identity argument, yes, there is a definitely a, a you know, a global Britain. It, there are Tory MPs for whom the idea of global Britain is not just a soundbite. John, long-term benefits from, from Brexit? Yeah, I, I, I don't see them. I mean, I think the best argument you can make for Brexit is that it's, um, you know, it, it'll, it'll make us uh, better as a, as, as a nation, um, and that we will be in control of our own uh, our own affairs, and that if we can get a trade deal with the EU, then you know the, the, the economic cost is is affordable. Uh, and I think you know actually there are a lot of people in this country who are prepared to trade um, a, a you know a certain amount of prosperity for control of immigration, for example. I think that is a that is a deal that a lot of people um, are actually quite happy to do. I mean. You don't get many politicians saying it explicitly. Um, but what I do find quite extraordinary, actually, is that, that we have actually had one, one benefit from Brexit already, which is that we were able to approve the vaccine uh, before other countries, which you know, is completely sort of unexpected and not, not actually that important in the, in the great scheme of things, because it just gives us a, a few weeks advantage. But I mean, you know, those few weeks uh, matter to people and, the, the, you know, it, we were able to do that because we weren't part of the political structures of uh, of the EU anymore. So we were able to be to, to have an independent um, regulatory procedure. And I just simply do not understand. What there is a question coming next, about, coming shortly about whether or about which in which you will be required to take something positive out of this process. So you may want to keep your powder dry. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I remember um, uh, watching um, Daniel Han. I mean, I remember I've watched it lots of times. I mean, in the run up to the referendum, one of Daniel Hannan's sort of standard um, bits of his spiel was that, um, you know, the EU had the slowest growth of any continent apart from Antarctica, and therefore we should liberate ourselves from it. Yeah, I know. It's and, all I mean, such rubbish. Well, of course. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you, if you were to leave the European Union and, and, and join a trade bloc with the 10 most, with the 10 fastest growing economies in the world. I, th I mean, I haven't checked recently, but they would be Nepal, Turkmenistan, Chad, um, I think Cambodia, um, I, I forget them, but, but yeah, it's, um, it's a specious argument. But what, what I want to ask you is whether or not there will be any, you know, you, you sell something and then, and then the sales pitch turns out to have been phony, but it's not clear whether or not there'll be any actual comeuppance because if you're selling something 
that you're not even suggesting will come good for 20 years, it's probably a, it's probably a, you know, a, an easy con to pull, isn't it? Yeah, um, I mean, because it's, it's, it's an emotional argument rather than a factual one. I mean, I, you know, as, as Ben said, you know, there, there are, there is no sort of, there's no upside economically to, to Brexit. I mean, the idea, the idea that we can, you know, sign, sign trade deals with Nepal and, uh, you know, benefit from, from its astonishing growth, which I, I don't think is, <laughs> is, is real. Um, it's just not, it's, you know, I mean, what we've got is Liz, Liz Trust signing all these continuity agreements so that uh, we don't actually end up with a worse arrangement with all these, these countries that we used to deal with uh, through the EU. Um, and, you know, the idea that there's some kind of sort of uh, great buccaneering trade opportunities out there that we'll be liberated to do is, is, is for the birds. Mm. Uh, I'll just come in there, Tom. Yes, cool. I was just going to say, um, I don't think you're going to get a big moment where people say, oh, hang on, this hasn't worked out economically how we thought it was going to work out. Therefore, it was a bad idea. But I think identity and economics do sort of interact in certain ways. You know, if you look at Britain in the 60s and 70s, there was a concern about relative decline, right? Relative to the prosperity that France and Germany and other European countries were having, and we weren't. And that did help prepare the ground for us to enter the EU uh, in the uh, 73, uh, 75 period. Uh, and part of that was economically driven. It was a way of, and it's backed by businesses, of course, and backed by the Conservative Party, but it was a sense of this was the progressive thing to do. And it overrode any sovereignty arguments, which were being made, I think John will know, but by uh, Labour at the time. So I, I think, I don't think you're going to get a sort of Damascene conversion to, oh, we got it all wrong. But I think over time, you can expect well i think it's not unreasonable to think that the uh, the identity uh, motivation will 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 recede and the economic uh, uh, arguments and motivations will come more to the fore that's a that's a very interesting point actually ben because i mean you could say that you know our joining the uh, european community in the first place was driven by that sense of relative economic decline mm -hmm. and that our leaving it was driven by a sense of relative uh, economic uh, overperformance, um, because actually, for a lot of the time before the financial crash, um, the, the UK economy was was going gangbusters. I mean, we had you know we had these uh, workers coming in from Central and Eastern Europe uh, because our economy was was yeah. firing on all cylinders. And the, the eurozone crisis was not a good look for the EU. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was a real terrible. Uh, macroeconomic mess and you know yeah. the brexiteers to the extent that they had any decent arguments that you know the failure of merkel and sarkozy and all the rest of them to to to, to treat greece and italy and, and the rest of them uh, properly and sensibly uh, was was a was a reasonable argument yeah but there's a very important question then if we now go into a period of rel relative economic decline again um will that uh, will that change sentiment uh, in the sort of next 10, 20 yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my own view is I don't, I don't, um, I don't, people, people make this choice for reasons of identity, but does, does your, does the identity, does the ideological cause survive when, you know, you can't really afford to have your two weeks in Spain in the summer because the, the pound is not, is not strong enough. And I think possibly it isn't, but it doesn't give you any clear guidance as to how you change your, decision but we will certainly be coming on to that a bit later on mm. um question six i know we, we we spoke at the top about um 
about the, the, the economic bad luck, if you like, that the end of the transition period and Brexit proper should, should coincide with this horrendous uh, freak event. Um, but question six is whether or not there is political good fortune in that economic misfortune. And it's, it's how will we separate, Ben, mm. the detrimental financial effects of the coronavirus from the self-inflicted financial effects of Brexit? In effect, will, will COVID let the Brexiteers off the hook? Yes, I've written uh, quite a few explainers on this very issue for The Independent over the last six months because, as you probably all know and viewers may know, Downing Street has been effectively trying to argue that this is the perfect time to have a no-deal Brexit because coronavirus will swamp the effects, uh, which is a pretty uh, specious argument. I mean, to the extent that it will, it, I mean, you know, we are, we've had a huge drop in activity this year, obviously, and we are coming back. And uh, overall, macroeconomically, uh, that will uh, probably mean we will grow next year rather than decline, which would have been otherwise the case if we put a no-deal Brexit on a kind of normal economic year. Fair enough. But I suppose my answer would be um, similar to the other answer in that you've got to look at specific sectors, right? If you look at spaces, places which, well, the sectors which are exposed to those tariffs, which are exposed to those border frictions, I think you will ultimately be able to discern the Brexit, the no deal Brexit effect, if we have one uh, there. It won't all be swamped by the sort of general recovery from the huge COVID slump. So I don't think that Downing Street is right that no one will notice a no deal Brexit because we're recovering from COVID because of uh, very specific sectoral impacts. Uh, there, there has been suggestions by Michael Gove early in the year that because we are trading so well, because trade has been so constricted by COVID that the border tensions and the border frictions won't be so noticeable and uh, painful There's less going through the ports effectively. I don't think that stands up to reason because, you, you know, you're seeing now actually the impact already. A lot of stuff is not getting in and not being delivered. That's why Honda had to stop production mm. because it's parts that were coming from Japan couldn't come in through Felixstowe port because so many uh, other companies had uh, ordered so much stuff uh, in response to the opening up after the first lockdown and also uh, because people had ordered a lot of PPE um, and also tried to stockpile in front of Brexit. So that logic that well that argument that Michael Gove was putting forward uh, early in the year um, has fallen away so I think overall I think we will be able to see the impact of a no deal Brexit on top of Covid I don't know how big it will be but I think it will be discernible. Um, Kate I mean if you if, even if we are to take um, the sort of the, the Dominic Cummings well, sadly politically no longer with us but even if we if we consider him to be if you like the ideological driving force between the for using Brexit to, to change the way that the UK state functions, if you like, or the economy functions. If you take the arguments put by him in a very sort of haphazard way, <clears throat> in, in good faith, if, 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 you, if, you, if you buy into that project, if, if it's, you know, his view has expressed many times is that actually the negotiations don't really matter very much. What will matter is us changing the way that we do business, giving, giving new emerging, economy, emerging um, industries like AI, huge public investment and blah, 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 blah. It all, it's, all a bit of a, it's all a bit of a pipe dream. But if you, if you take it, um, you know, if you, if you buy into it and you take it with good faith, 
um, what will 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 that be? You know, even, even, you know, the best case scenario has still nevertheless arrived at the same time as COVID nineteen and the horrendous economic after effects. So I guess if 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 Cummings were still in post and, and all this could still be got on with, would 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 coronavirus be be a legitimate um, thing that they could point to and say, well, look, we can't do what we wanted to do? It's interesting because I mean, you know, Cummings you know, himself argued, argued both sides, didn't he? I mean, he was very um, keen on the correct moment for us to uh, trigger Article 50 when we had lots of our ducks in a row. You know, the, you know, the idea that um, the outcome of these negotiations wasn't, uh, wasn't crucial was, you know, it took on different um, uh, levels at different times, didn't it? Um, it's, it's very hard to know what is going to get through to the public because we do have both of these events happening at the same time. I mean, I think if it's a no deal Brexit, I think it will be much more obvious um, what parts of it that we can, we can point to and say that's because of the no deal Brexit. Um, but I think for, for years to come, Ben and I will be reporting on um, OBR uh, economic forecasts that break down <laughs> the continued effects of the pandemic and a separate box that talks about um, the effects of agreement or no agreement with the European Union. Yeah. I mean, John, let, let me try and put it in, in a slightly better way. Is, is that if you are a vote leaver sitting in Downing Street now, I mean, I remember Rishi Sunak saying to Andrew Marr last week that, um, that actually coronavirus is going to do much more harm to the economy than Brexit next yeah. year. Yeah. And then this is a guy who has believed in Brexit for more than 20 years, you know, wrote about it in the Winchester College um, newsletter. Um, and, and yet at the moment when his great dreams come true, the best thing he can think to serve them is actually they won't be as bad as, as, as this other thing. Um, I mean, so if, you are, um, uh, if you're a, a vote leaver, obviously you're, you're pining for, for Dom, but if you are nevertheless a vote leaver sitting in Downing Street now, are you sort of A, very sad that COVID is going to stop you from doing all these brilliant things that you were going to do? Or are you be sort of quietly relieved that it might mean that you sort of get away with it? No, I think, I think you'd be worried um, about the effects of coronavirus because uh, there's some, some very interesting uh, research in the British election study about the effects of uh, coronavirus on, uh, on political attitudes. And what it's done is um, force people to go back to their sort of previous political alignments in that, you know, people who had been left-wing and voted Labour in the past were much more in favour of uh, res coronavirus restrictions and lockdowns, and they're much more critical of Boris Johnson's handling of coronavirus. Um, and that's really eroded the, the uh, vote leave support that, uh, you know, those, those first-time Tory voters who voted for Boris Johnson uh, on, on the basis of get Brexit done. And, and once Brexit is done, um, then, you know, not only do you, do you have these people who've been you know, offended by the way the government's handled coronavirus. You don't have the sort of the Brexit issue uh, as as a sort of lever anymore. So you know those those red wall seats are uh, are in danger, and that's what I'd be worried about if I was a, a vote lever in number ten. I, I do think there are political upsides in it, in the sense that I mean, 
it's Brexit is now getting to its proper, proper, very biggest crunch moment of the many crunch moments. And it can't be denied that the likes of us um, really don't care about it as much as we should, because there's this other huge thing that's come along. But, but that, is, that is politics and it, forever it, it shall be in that fashion. Um, question seven. Um, in the spirit of Christmas, and I'll ask you first, Kate, can anyone suggest something positive that will come out of this? <laughs> um, well, I mean, obviously the Conservative Party will not be talking about Europe for much longer. Um, sorry, that's me just being sarcastic. Um, look, I mean, look, the, the serious answer is democracy, isn't it? Um, you know, um, whatever your view on um, uh, another referendum, um, we had what we in the end had one referendum and um, people who voted leave won and they have been waiting a long time to see uh, the results of that vote. Um, oh, so, so there will be, um, there will be a, a democratic deficit will be repaid when the deed is finally done, you mean? It shouldn't have taken this long. I think so. No, I'm, I'm not sure that I would argue it shouldn't have taken that long. I mean, I think maybe politicians should have been a bit more upfront with voters that it would take that long. These are complex international negotiations. Of course, they're going to take years. Of course, they're going to be very difficult. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, democratic deficit will be, yeah, made up. It's tough though. I mean, po politics, are, there, there was Brexit in June 2016 and then there was Trump in November 2016. And all, all the pro-Brexit columnists sort of wrote how England, the UK had shown this great um, foresight because now we have this Brexit loving president in the White House and there'd be this great deal on the way. And of course, an entire presidential term, <laughs> an entire president has been and gone before it's even been done. And yeah. you know, in, a democracy, in democracy, you, should, you do have the right to change your mind or you should do. And uh, referendums, they don't really give you the right to change your mind to a certain extent. And I, I don't sort of, my own view is I don't sort of see that this would be a great triumph for, for politics and the way that we do politics in this country. It's actually sort of done real, real harm to them. Um, well, you, well, you could argue that people had the, you know, they had the right to uh, choose whether to change their mind in, at, the, at the last general election, given that in a Labour with Keir Starmer's policy of a second referendum um, were true. offering all that uh, that option um, but unfortunately the Labour Party was led by Jeremy Corbyn at the time. Well exactly and politics is a blunt instrument isn't it you only you, you have these complex questions but the only method through which the people can express their opinion is is across in this box or across in that box and you and you you end up sort of having the people's will for, for Brexit reconfirmed but through the prism of saying yes or no to Jeremy Corbyn and you won't necessarily settle anything. Tom, if I can just uh, come in on the other, tr the other upside that is often given is that, you know, UK politics will no longer have Europe to blame for everything that goes wrong, right? You know, every, for 50 odd years, they've said that it's Europe's fault, it's Europe's fault, it's not our fault. So the argument is that you'll suddenly have this uh, inability to do that and British politics will have to grow up and people will take responsibility. Um, you can probably guess I'm not totally buying it with this particular government because they have an unerring ability to blame others when they should take the blame for themselves. So a hypothetical, uh, you know, sort of in principle upside, I don't think it's going to uh, materialise in practice. Yeah, I mean, if, if next year um, we can't go on holiday to Spain, 
and there's no and there's food shortages in the supermarkets i strongly suspect like you do that the outcome won't be a great shrug of the shoulders from the great british public saying well look this is all our problem now it's not it's nothing to do with, it's nothing to do with the eu um i i wonder if you have another um positive ben that um is going to be there's going to come out from this hyper extended um national torture which has gone on however one voted yeah i just kind of wonder maybe we'll start to hear less about brexit as a word and more about re-entry or something anything that just changes the <laughs> lexicon even slightly might be a minuscule upside but uh no i'm i'm struggling i'm scraping the barrel here and uh, not coming up with much i'm afraid tom john uh no well i've 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 um, tried, you know, with uh, with approving the vaccine uh, before everybody else. Although Canada's just approved the vaccine, there uh, they they haven't uh, left the European Union. Um, but you know, I mean, th th yes, there are going to be there are going to be um, upsides. I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, you know, people voted for voted to leave the European Union for for, for reasons, and you know. Obviously, a lot of those reasons are not going to turn out as people expected or hoped. But you know, I think I think there is a, a democratic benefit in uh, in that the government will be responsible for uh, its own policies and won't be able to uh, won't be able to shuffle things off to to, to Europe. Uh, and the, the voters will feel that they are electing a government that controls that controls our destiny. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't personally describe this as a positive, and, and we sort of spoke about it earlier. But of course, um, it, as as remains, if you like, get ready to next year point out how what a terrible mistake all of this was. Um, we do have to accept that many people will have got what they wanted from Brexit, potentially anyway. Certainly, that it suggests it looks like they will. Um, not giving the EU any money anymore, and an end of um, free movement of certainly of Euro European-based immigration. Of course. Um, if we are going to have this big, if, 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 you know, if, we, if the referendum had gone the other way, um, right now, Prime Minister Cameron, Prime Minister Osborne, quite possibly, likely even, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, would, that what they would currently be negotiating um, would be the, the terrible political difficulties of quite what the UK's role might be in this 750 billion euro COVID, European-wide COVID relief fund in which Europe's richest countries are being asked and, and have agreed to, to bail out the ones who, the, the, the poorer ones. Um, France are do, doing that, Germany are doing that. Um, I sort of, one one closes one's eyes, um, if the referendum had gone the other way and the demons had still been released, that, 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 that were released regardless of the outcome, sort of, I mean, it, it would keep me awake at night trying to imagine um, the politics at this current moment of, of real financial difficulty mm. um what what the, what the aggrieved Farages and co would be saying when when we would be requ required if you like to spend large amounts of money that we don't have on other countries so so there are some aspects of euro skepticism which although i don't wish they hadn't come to pass will nevertheless have actually been drawn out of um of out of our politics and in some ways there are upsides to that, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, uh, which <laughs> question eight, which we must, um, I guess we must proceed on the idea that, um, that none of these positives will come to pass. Uh, question eight is the very short, <laughs> distinct and final question. And um, I'll ask you first, Kate. Uh, 
is there any way back from this madness? <laughs> um, I, God, I mean, uh, it seems since probably 2012, uh, since you have been a political journalist since then, that w there has been a headlong dash um, from one, you know, major story, uh, one referendum to another referendum, general elections um, into COVID. I mean, I remember a point in January where all the political journalists looked at each other and thought, you know, are we going to have to start writing questions about written answers in Parliament and, you know, <laughs> scrabbling around for tiny little stories. And then, of course, the, the pandemic hit. Um, I mean, I assume that we are going to be writing about the um, economic fallout um, from the pandemic um, for at least the next couple of years of my um, <laughs> professional life. Uh, that's, that's what I plan. Um, it doesn't seem as if we're going to get another election for a while you know you might think it's a good thing you might think that's a bad thing but certainly we've had an awful lot of elections in the uk in the last eight years so it might seem less turbulent politically because of that um john i mean um for quite a while um you know all the, all the polls for quite a while have suggested i mean polls are polls and there were polls before the, the first, before the 2016 referendum as well but there does seem to be a pretty clear um indication that the country is not as pro-Brexit as it was four and a half years ago. There's yeah. also the fact that for, 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 for justifiable reasons, the three million EU citizens that live in the UK didn't vote, um, but they do continue to live in this country. So you do have essentially a clear majority of people, you know, on the streets, living their lives, getting on with things, who don't really want this thing, which is very much about to happen, to yeah. happen. And, I, I, and, if, and if the consequences of that, which I suspect are quite likely, but I really don't know, are that there will be a just like with Scottish independence, there will be a real clear majority that agrees that this was a bad idea, uh, that we should never have done it. Um, what are the political pathways, and are they? You know, Paul Mason says that we won't go back till 2050. The people just sort of pluck these years out for fun, don't they? <laughs> what I don't yeah. quite understand is how, you know, through what party and through what means, you know, Brexit, Brexit having divided both parties' bases very very effectively what are the means through which any political party can take us back into the european union if 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 it's clear that that's what the people want and by when and how yeah no i think i think it's a fascinating question um because it it's it's one of the great puzzles of contemporary uh, politics is what happened to the liberal democrats i mean they have just disappeared from uh, the scene altogether um you know touching touching five percent in the opinion polls uh, several times recently um you know ed davey lovely chap a very effective uh, very green um uh, minister in the coalition government actually actually responsible for the sort of the green energy miracle of uh, of wind power uh, which is you know one of the great untold stories of the past decade and yet disappeared without trace but i mean and and one of the reasons for that is that the Liberal Democrats haven't been true to their their core beliefs, which is which is advocating rejoining the EU. I mean, you would have thought that you know, it's ideal for, for, for the Lib Dems because that's, that's a niche market. 
I mean, you know, but there are a lot of people in this country who feel very strongly that we ought to, uh, we ought to rejoin, that we shouldn't give up the fight against Brexit. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's nobody speaking up for them. And, uh, you know, what, what on earth are the Lib Dems for, if, if, if not that? We've been saying that for years, but there was a, there have been two elections since then, and that the, what you've just said was true going into both of them, and it's just it's never... well, no, but at the last election, I mean, to be fair, you know, Joe Swinson was advocating, you know, revoking Article Fifty. I mean, she was. That was a very hard line sort of rejoin position, but because of the failure of that, they've just they've just run away and uh, and hid in the bushes. Doesn't it, it make it easier for them to do that after the transition's over, John? I mean. You know, because they they're not going to get the anti-democratic line thrown at them. It's like, right, well, we were in favour of going back in, just in the same way. Uh, you know, ERGers were in favour of coming out, whatever. You what you mean? It's just a time. matter of timing. Yeah, that they've got to wait until mm. until yeah. we've actually wait left January, the yeah. left the single market and the customs yeah. union. I don't know that. I mean, because we've left the European Union. I mean, we we left legally at the end of January. So I would have thought from then on you could argue for for rejoining. I just mm -hmm. I just don't see. I don't see what the political downside is that uh, of that is for the Lib Dems. I mean, I, um, I know. here's one suggestion for a way back, um, and it kind of ties into previous questions we had. But what if um, Ben's idea of you know starting to feel national decline isn't because we're worried about what's happening in France and what's happening in Germany, but maybe what about what's happening in an independent Scotland's economy after it rejoins the European Union? Oh. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I'm not saying this is in the next, you know, <laughs> two years. That's not going to happen, Kate. So that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> that, that, that's after we break up the UK's single market, of course, as well, with untold economic. <laughs> look, uh, look, I mean, look, all I'm going to say is when my granny was born, Northern Ireland didn't exist, and the entirety of Ireland was part of the United Kingdom. <laughs> things happen, people, things change. John, I mean, I, I know I asked you about if there was a way back from the madness, and the, the Lib Dems is all obviously they're the, the natural party of pro Brexit, of uh, of, pro, of, of of rejoin, but no one, you're not, no one is realistically suggesting that the, a Liberal Democrat majority government is going to take the country back into the European Union. That's that's that, no. is, that is pie in the sky. So so what is there is there a time um, soon where the Conservatives will say what the Conservatives love power, right? Is there a time, not, the, not necessarily too far away, where one of the two main parties decides that actually the way to win an election is if we promise to rejoin the European Union? No, I mean, that, 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 that's 10, 10, 15 years away um, at, at, at the nearest, I would have thought. Um, although, I mean, if you look back at the, you know, the history of the... Of, of the 60s and 70s, the, the way the two main parties um, kept, uh, kept changing, the way the Labour Party in particular was, uh, was, was against, and then it was for, and then it was against, and then it was for. Um, but I mean, I can't see how, um, how one of the main parties is gonna change its, uh, change its position on that for, for a long time, because I mean, that's just not going to be, that's just not gonna be a popular view. I mean, that's why I think it's it's an ideal platform for the Lib Dems to build a to, to build a solid base of support for. Um, I know that the most consistent bit of feedback we get from these events is um, to make sure they finish on time. So, and <laughs> but before I let you all go and like watch the Queen's Gambit or Corrie at sixty or whatever it is, I have two things that I am required to plug. 
Um, if you want to hear more about live events like this one before anyone else, you can subscribe to Independent, Independent Premium for £3 for the first three months. That is a bargain. To find out more about upcoming events in the new year, um, log into the Independent website. And specifically, these events and details of them are to be found at independent.co.uk forward slash events. Um, the second thing is that the Independent has launched its daily politics newsletter, which will be arriving in inboxes at 6 p.m. every day. That will be the concise, digested read of everything that's happened that day. And it brings me no pleasure at all to have to say that there are going to still be quite a few busy ones in the months ahead um, and years indeed. Um, I think the sign up link for that newsletter is in the, is in the chat window of this Zoom. So if you want to sign up, it's there um, now. If not, it's not very difficult to find on the independent website. Um, on that note, thanks very much to Ben, John and Kate, and especially thank you to all of you for joining us. Um, and even if none of us really have a clue about what comes next with Brexit, we can possibly, possibly promise that one way or another, we will all find out quite soon. So <laughs> thank you very much. And that's it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that. Remember, if you want to take part in events like that one and have access to exclusive content, then click the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Independent Premium.